I'm James Bays in New Delhi, where the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi is hosting leaders and ministers from 19 countries and the European Union for the G20 summit. The nations represented here are the world's 20 largest economies. The bloc accounts for more than 80% of global GDP, 75% of international trade and two-thirds of the world's population. But as the international community increasingly deals with opposing interests and geopolitical dynamics, many are questioning if the Intergovernmental Forum serves any purpose. Enter the United Nations Secretary-General, a man mandated to help resolve situations threatening global peace and security. Soon after he arrived here in Delhi, we asked him whether a summit overshadowed by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a world economy in distress and an escalating climate crisis can set the global agenda. UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres talks to Al Jazeera. Antonio Guterres, Secretary-General of the United Nations, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. It's a pleasure. Now, you've been in your job over six years now, and nearly every year you come here to the G20 to talk to them. And I've noticed, reading what you've said in previous years, you're getting bolder in what you're saying to the G20. You're now calling for a reform of the international system, a reform of the financial system, a reform of the Security Council. Why are you now saying things that you used to leave unsaid? Well, first of all, I'm not saying it for the first time. If you read something I wrote more than 20 years ago, you will find it. Um, these are things that uh, have been needed for a long time. But you're saying them as the Secretary General. What, what I believe is important to recognize today is that we face dramatic challenges. We have climate change out of control. And we have not yet been able, as an international community, to put in place an effective way to defeat climate change. Uh, on the other hand, we see new technologies emerging, artificial intelligence, and there is no mechanism at the international level to have a minimum of governance in relation to those new technologies, and we see states and international organizations very weak in their capacity of dialogue, even with the private sector in this regard, uh, and we know the risks that we are facing. On the other hand, we see the level of inequalities growing enormously, and uh, never the developing countries were in a more dramatic situation than in the present moment. And this is a factor of suffering, but it's also a factor of instability. So it is in a moment like this, when at the same time we see the, 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 the world becoming more and more multipolar. No, uh, we see that multipolarity emerging, that we need to recognize that we need stronger, and more effective multilateral organizations. What's wrong with what now, you have? What, what's wrong with what you have right now? The multilateral organizations we have today, and we have been talking about the Security Council, we have been talking about the Bretton Woods system, were created after the Second World War. They have a composition and they have a power structure that corresponds to the realities, power realities, economic realities of the world after the Second World War. A continent like Africa practically was not represented. Most of the African countries today were at the time still colonies under the colonial regimes. Uh, now, if we want our multilateral system to be able to respond to the challenges we face today, we need to have a multilateral system that represents the world today. 
in the composition of the organs, in the powers of those organs, and in the capacity of those organs to address the real challenges we face now that are different from the challenges we are facing uh, 70 years ago. Just to explain for our viewers, because you mentioned the Bretton Woods system, that's the system that was set up after World War II for the international economic system, created the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. So tell me, why have you not at certain points spoken out more on these issues if you want to change things? Even this year, I'll give you an example. There was a new president of the World Bank, A.J. Banga, the 14th president of the World Bank. Yes, he was born here in India. Yes, he's a very distinguished economist, but he's a U.S. citizen. And every single one of those 14 has been a U.S. citizen. That's not right, is it? That is one of the central questions. I mean, the composition of the World Bank, of the IMF, represent the economy of the post-war situation, in which there was a clear dominance of the United States of the global economy. And it was the United States that, uh, with the, uh, the Marshall Plan, has helped Europe come out of the uh, devastation that was caused by the Second World War. Uh, so it, it was a completely different world. Now uh, we have, as I said, a multipolar world. We have a lot of emerging economies that uh, uh, today are very uh, relevant. Uh, uh, we have continents like Africa uh, that need to have an adequate representation. So it is clear that these bodies need to readjust their representation to the realities of today. And at the same time, it is clear that they need to gain the dimension that is needed. Look, the World Bank today, it looks an enormous institution, but it became much smaller than what it was. The paid-in capital of the World Bank today is less than one-fifth as a percentage of global GDP of what it was in 1960. And Either we transform these organizations into truly universal organizations and with the level of capital that is needed to be really the safeguard of uh, the crisis of uh, the global economy or the fragmentation of the financial system will be inevitable because other realities will emerge and uh, I prefer reformed universal institutions than a world in which everything is fragmented. It sounds easy, though. Reforming these institutions is going to be so hard. Take the UN Security Council. Those five permanent members with a veto, they hold all the cards. This isn't going to happen anytime soon, is it? It will probably not happen immediately. That's why it is so important to insist and it's so important to maintain in the agenda. But at the same time, this does not mean that there are not many other things that we can do immediately. And namely, if we want to correct the dramatic inequalities we have in the world. A few examples. We have um, multilateral development banks. Those multilateral development banks need to be capitalized because they became small in relation to the problems of the world. And when we put one dollar in a multilateral development bank, it multiplies by five because they can then go to the market uh, and seek resources that then they can put at the disposal of developing countries. And we need to change their business model in order to be able to attract much more private finance. If a bank makes a loan, that loan is that loan. But if the bank gives guarantees, 
if it becomes first risk taker in coalition of international financial institutions or including private institutions, what will happen is that the resources of the bank will be multiplied in the resources that, are, that will be put at the disposal of developing countries. On the other hand, we have special drawing rights that were distributed. Those special drawing rights, part of them, are now uh, putting at the disposal of developing countries through the IMF. Now, if they, are, if they will be put through multilateral development banks, once again, they can be multiplied by five. So there are many things that can be done if there is political will, without changing the structures, without putting into question the power relations, things that can be done, and I would say must be done, to address the immediate needs in relation to the dramatic debt situation and the dramatic, uh, uh, I mean, financial situation of uh, so many developing countries in the world, and to find the resources needed to much more ambition in mitigation of emissions for, in relation to climate change and might more, much more ambition in climate justice supporting developing countries both in their reduction of emissions but very important, more and more important in the adaptation, building resilience of their communities to respond to the devastations that we are already witnessing. We are not talking about the problems of the future, we are talking about the problems of today. I came from the African uh, summit on climate. 17 of the 20 hotspots that are today devastated by droughts, by floods, by all kinds of uh, storms are in Africa. And Africa has not the resources to respond to it. So we need more ambition in mitigation, more ambition in climate justice. Secretary General, you've warned of something you called the great fracture, a decoupling of the world into two rival camps. Now, here at the G20, we have President Putin, who's not here. Perhaps that's because of the ICC uh, arrest warrant, which means he can't travel. But President Xi, for the first time, is not coming here. He was centre stage last month at the, Brink, at the BRICS summit that took place in South Africa. Do you fear that the fracture is already starting, with the G7 and the US on one side, China and the BRICS on the other? I think there is a huge risk of that to happen. And I think that would be extremely negative for the world. The IMF has calculated what is the negative impact of a decoupling of the world economy. Uh, and it came to the conclusion that it would be a loss of 7 trillion US dollars. I mean, this is something we can't afford in the terrible situation we are already li living. We need one global market with clear rules. We need one global financial system that represents today's world. We need one global free, open internet, uh, again, with rules. Uh, but it's important that, we, and I know it will be very difficult to, to, well, to overcome the levels of mistrust that today exist, but it is so important that uh, the most important powers understand the need to negotiate seriously in order to be able to find ways to guarantee the universal carrot of uh, markets and institutions. As you know, there is one issue in global affairs at the moment where there is no consensus in the G20 or in the UN Security Council. That is the war in Ukraine. I know I've asked you this question before, but as things stand, do you see any path to peace? I think it is realistic to say that uh, in the short term, uh, 
the efforts of mediation for peace uh, will be very in big difficulties to produce results. I think uh, the two sides uh, are still determined to go on uh, uh, with the war uh, that was caused by the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Uh, but of course, one day it will have to end, and I strongly hope that it will end uh, with a just peace and a peace in line uh, with the, the values that the UN represents, namely the values of the UN Charter and international law. One of your only achievements during the war was the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which allowed grain still to leave Ukraine to go to global markets. Russia pulled out of that in, uh, in July this year. I know you met Foreign Minister Lavrov in South Africa, and you sent him some new proposals. He's now rejected those new proposals. Are you disappointed, and is it worth having a deal that's not permanent and that can last? I think we need a serious deal. And the serious deal is a deal that uh, everybody respects and a deal in which the behaviors are predictable. Uh, we have done a, a very big effort uh, in order to remove obstacles to the Russian exports of food and fertilizers. And there are a certain number of other things that uh, we are doing. And uh, I had the occasion to present, uh, as I said, a new proposal uh, to the Russians in which uh, several of the problems uh, find uh, what I believe is an adequate solution. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we must have the guarantee that if Russia has the conditions to have their own exports of, of food and fertilizers, that the Ukrainians will also have the same rights, and that the Black Sea Initiative becomes a credible thing in the sense that it is not suffering, as it happened in the past, permanent interruptions, permanent uh, uh, um, uh, suspensions, and things of the sort. We need to find a system in which there is a mutual guarantee. Guarantee that the Russians will be able to export their food and fertilizers, but guarantee that Ukraine will be able to effectively export their food products. Let me move to Africa now. Since 2020, there have been six successful coups on the African continent. And if I go back just a couple of years, there were no coups at all in Africa between 2008 and 2017. What do you think is the reason for this? And are you worried that this is becoming contagious? I think there are many root causes for this. Uh, but I believe there is one that is essential. Governments have lost largely the confidence of their peoples in some situations, I can recognize that because there are problems of corruption, because there are problems of uh, bad governance uh, or uh, any other reasons of the sort. But in many other circumstances, you have governments that simply have not the resources to provide the basic needs of their people. And the enormous frustration that generates in the people uh, is something that makes very easy the creation of conditions for coup d'etats and for other kinds of uh, instability in different parts of the African continent, as in different parts of the world in similar situations. We remember coups in Latin America in the past, uh, so all this is not uh, entirely new in the history of humankind. We need to address the root causes. It's not enough to try to solve country by country the problem of the coup. We need to address the root causes. And one basic root cause in Africa is the 
enormous inequality of which the African continent is a victim. First, it was a victim of colonialism and the legacy of colonialism, and second, of an international financial and economic system that works against Africans' interests in many, many aspects. This needs to be addressed. And at the same time, let's recognize African countries, African governments, need to be able to improve their governance. Uh, corruption needs to be fought. Uh, there are many other things that uh, those that have responsibilities need to do. But that is true in Africa, as it is in all other parts of the world, because it's essential to reestablish a relationship of trust between those that rule those countries legitimately, uh, elected properly, but lack the resources to provide to the needs of their people, build, re rebuild the trust between those governments and the people. It's essential. It requires an African effort, but it requires a lot of international solidarity and of international investment in Africa. Let's look at the two most recent coups. In July, in Niger, a democratically elected government was overturned. And then in August, there was a coup in Gabon, opposing, uh, deposing Ali Bongo. His family have run the country for all of my life, and I'm 56 years old. Are all the coups the same? No. Um, the people support, it seems people support the coup in Gabon. The Was that a good coup? The coups are very different in its origins, in its nature. But one thing for me is clear. Military coups leading to military regimes were never able to solve the problems of the country. We had an experience in my own country. We had a revolution in which a dictatorship was put aside by a military intervention. But immediately, that dictatorship was moved and democracy was reestablished. So there are ways in which the military can move in order to create democracy and democratic institutions and support them. What is uh, what, unfortunately, we witness is a logic of power grabbing and the logic of creating regimes that in most of the situations are much worse than what we had before and are totally unable to solve the security problems, the economic problems, the social problems of the countries. A decade ago, the international community was so concerned about the situation in Mali that it set up a UN peacekeeping mission. At one point you had 15,000 peacekeepers there. Now they've had to leave because of the government installed by the coup has ordered you out. Do you fear what is going to happen next? In Mali and across the Sahel, will there be more insurgency, more violence, more volatility? Let's be clear about one thing. The peacekeeping force in Mali was a peacekeeping force in a country where there is no peace to keep. And I myself, had presented to the Security Council a set of options, including the option of uh, replacing that peacekeeping operation. But that wasn't the option you wanted them to take. What I've been insisting is that situations like the situation in Mali, where you have terrorist groups with an enormous power and an enormous capacity, what we need is not peacekeeping forces, is peace-enforcing and counter-terrorism forces with robust African forces led by the African Union with mandates established by the Security Council under Chapter 7, that is the chapter that re relates to these questions of peace and security, and with guaranteed financing. This is the only way to address the challenge of terrorism in Africa. You cannot think that peacekeepers can be the solution 
for countries where there is no peace to keep and where today we have terrorist organizations that are much better armed than the peacekeepers themselves. More than 300 UN peacekeepers lost their lives. Now the mission is packing up. What do you say to the families of those people? Well, I express my deep, deep regret, my deep condolences. It is the, one of the biggest sources of suffering I have. We have improved a lot the situation with the measures that we took, the so-called Action for Peacekeeping and Action for Peacekeeping Plus. We were fortunately able to reduce meaningfully our losses, but to see those that are sacrificing their lives to save, to rescue people and to save the lives of other people being killed is something that really breaks my heart and creates me an enormous discomfort. And uh, when talking uh, to the colleagues uh, that are there, when talking to uh, the governments, uh, the heads of state of those countries, when I can with the families, I mean, this is something very, very difficult and something that really makes me feel very uncomfortable. Secretary General, in Sudan, there was not only a coup, but this year there's now started an ongoing war between two rival military leaders. Can I ask you about the peace efforts there? Because there seem to be so many different actors. You've got the African Union, you've got the regional grouping IGAD, you've got Saudi Arabia working with the US, you've got meetings arranged by Egypt. The UN seems to be on the sidelines. No. Is it time for a coordinated effort of everyone? The UN has been very clear. We are for African solutions, for African problems, and we support the African Union and IGAD in their initiatives. And we believe that is the best way for the UN to be useful. But there in are those lots of different initiatives. Isn't it time, for example, in Libya, everyone came together in Berlin and had a joint approach. Isn't it time for something like that the, to happen with regard to Sudan? The problem is that in relation to Sudan, you have too many interests and too many contradictions of those interests. And that is what makes the situation particularly difficult. And on top of that, you have uh, a situation in which the struggle for power not only among two men, but among two groups, uh, uh, became something that is totally unacceptable. Secretary-General, everything we've discussed in this interview has been really, really grim, and there are so many conflicts and crises we haven't had time to discuss. So can I ask you, in your time on the global stage, and you became the Prime Minister of your country in Portugal back in 1995, nearly 30 years ago, have you seen the world in a worse state than it is now? I think the world today faces much worse challenges and unfortunately the levels of suffering have increased dramatically but at the same time the world is creating instruments that if properly used, namely from the technological and scientific point of view, if properly used can guarantee that we are able to eradicate hunger, to eradicate poverty, that we are able to, care, to create the conditions for a much more peaceful situation if uh, we put those fantastic resources to the benefit of the people instead of uh, to the struggle for power among different interests that in so many circumstances are totally illegitimate. How worried are you about the world your grandchildren will live in? Well, uh, I wrote a letter to my granddaughter uh, asking her to open the letter only when she comes to uh, my age. And uh, 
I hope that when she opens that letter, she will not feel very, very angry with my generation. My generation until now has essentially failed in giving a response to the dramatic challenges of the world. I hope we'll still be able to change and to allow my granddaughters to live in a better world. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. It's a pleasure.